Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. Before I get to our guest today, I want to thank all of you who have joined Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. When you join our daily support group, which has multiple sessions a day in every single time zone, you get unlimited live support from our trained and certified betrayal trauma recovery coaches and a community of women who care about you, who you can actually speak to. The awesome thing is we developed it specifically for you because we've been through it and we know how it goes. So you never have to find childcare because you can just do it from your home. You can do it from your closet. You can go out in your parked car in your driveway. As long as you have internet access, you can access the group on your phone, on your computer, on your iPad, anywhere through Zoom, which I'm sure all of you are really familiar with since the pandemic. Zoom's become very popular. So please go to our website, btr.org, to check out the session schedule, and we'd love to see you in a group today. All right, now for this week's guest. I have Malia Stevens on today's episode. She is a practicing marriage and family therapist and an activist leader against sexual exploitation in her home state of Alabama. She is a board member with the National Center on Sexual Exploitation and the founder of Rescue Innocence Movement, a nonprofit created to protect this generation of children from the harms of sexual exploitation through prevention, education, and legislation. After witnessing the detrimental effects of hardcore pornography in the lives of both the children and the adults she has treated, Malia felt a call to raise awareness about the unacknowledged health and societal harms of this illegal material. Since 2012, Malia has organized several city and statewide events and public awareness campaigns. She frequently partners with anti-trafficking leaders to promote education and meet the needs of survivors of sexual exploitation. Through the Rescue Innocence Movement and with the help of the National Center on Sexual Exploitation and local leaders, she has been instrumental in the launch of the nation's first emergency treatment program for pediatric survivors of sex trafficking at UAB Hospital. Malia often speaks publicly on topics such as the public health crisis of pornography and enhancing sexual intimacy within the context of Christian marriage. She was also a key leader in the recent passage of the Alabama Resolution to declare pornography a public health crisis. Malia longs to see a day when the evil of sexual exploitation is fully extinguished by a majority in society who have grown intolerant of its immense harms and injustices. She believes through continued awareness, education, advocacy, and united activism, that day is close within our grasp, as do I, Malia. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So in your bio, you mention the societal harms of this illegal material. And we're going to touch base on this because I think it's really interesting. Most people don't realize that hardcore pornography is illegal because it's so prevalent, right? We're also going to talk to you about your article. So most people don't realize that this material, hardcore pornography, is illegal. Can you talk about that for a little bit? Yes, Anne, you're absolutely right. Most people, because it's become so normalized in society, they don't realize that this easily accessible material is actually illegal, at least the hardcore version of it, which is what mainstream internet pornography is today. And the only pornography that is technically legal is softcore, which is a very confined definition of pornography. Hardcore internet pornography is 
illegal. And up until the early 90s, our Department of Justice was enforcing federal obscenity laws, but we've grown very lax, if not completely stopped enforcing our existing laws. So at this point, it's running rampant. Pornographers know they can get away with producing whatever material they want because we're not enforcing existing laws. Which is unfortunate because all pornography does is hurt people. Whether you're participating in it, whether you're actively using it, or whether you're in a relationship with someone who's actively using it, it's going to hurt someone all of the people involved. So back in February, this is 2020. So in February, you wrote an article entitled Alabama's resolution to declare pornography a public health crisis is urgently needed. Now, did that pass since you wrote this article? Yes, it did. It did pass a few months later. Awesome. In that article, you mentioned the heartbreaking experiences that you've had as a therapist working with children who are addicted to pornography at as young as 6 to 11 years old. Would you mind telling our listeners a bit about your experiences? Certainly. Yes, yeah, so I've been in private practice for 20 years and over the course of the 20 years I've seen the devastating effects of hardcore internet pornography on adults, individual lives, marriages, and as we may touch on later, you know, trafficking victims, things of that nature. But what really alarmed me was back in 2010 to 2012 some families brought in children ages 6 to 11. I had various families referred to me, and I don't specialize in kids. It just happened to be that these families were referred to me, and I worked with the families with, for example, a little girl who was six years old when she was first exposed to pornography at the neighbor's house. And after one exposure, she was drawn back to the material over and over. And she and the little girl down the street started acting out sexually. The families caught them and they decided, okay, if we just don't talk about it, maybe they'll forget about it and it'll go away. But it didn't go away. She kept returning to do more aggressive sexual acting out with the neighbor. And then it escalated to the point where she was performing different things that she had seen in pornography, very violent things on her baby sibling that was barely two years old. And the parents were alarmed. They continued to think, okay, maybe if we just remove her from these situations and try to watch her, it'll stop. But she got in trouble at school because she was stealing iPhones from teachers' purses so that she could get access to pornography. So this little girl is sitting in my office and her feet don't hit the floor. She's very flat. Her affect is very flat and almost eerily flat. And her parents told me she doesn't bond the same. She's not the same child. She seems cold, withdrawn, isolated, and we don't know what to do. And so in my discussion with her privately, the little girl, I gingerly asked her questions because I was uncertain, you know, how she would respond. But she flat out told me, I don't see why my parents are bringing me here. I don't see what's wrong with pornography. You should be able to have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. So that was very alarming. And I had another case that I can share. There were a few other cases, but there's one other I can talk about. That was a young little boy who was 11 Parents don't know when he was first exposed to pornography, but he knew that the neighbor got Playboy magazines in his mailbox. So at night, he would sneak out of the house to go look in the neighbor's mailbox. And on more than one occasion, he broke into the neighbor's home 
which there was no children in the neighbor's home. It was just adults, but he would break into their house and get on their computer because he couldn't get access to pornography at home. So the neighbors would call the parents and be like, your son's on our computer again. Can you please come get him? So these things really opened my eyes to the fact that this material truly hijacks the brain of any user, but especially a child. And it provides sex miseducation and sets them on a trajectory of life that is extremely problematic and just was very heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. I've often said that pornography is an abuse issue. It's always going to be an abuse issue. And when it comes to children, they're not necessarily abusers from using porn because they're children, but they are being abused by the porn. The porn has abused them. Absolutely. Exposing a child to pornography is tantamount to child sex abuse. They have no category in their brain to understand what these images are and how to begin to process what they're seeing. It completely hijacks their brain, their physiology, how they have a physiological response. And they have a compulsive need to act out as a way to cope with the trauma. So when you have child on child harmful sexual behavior, you're absolutely correct that we don't see the child as a true perpetrator. They're simply, they're an obsessive compulsive trauma response to what they've been exposed to. Right. So speaking of these children, you pointed out that parents had noticed changes in their children. What red flags should parents know to look for? Things that they might start to notice with children who've been exposed to pornography, they may become more isolating, withdrawn, depressed. They may become sullen and they may have a bad attitude towards other friends, playmates, especially people of the opposite sex. They may become more aggressive. You may see sexual acting out that, you know, is age inappropriate, uh, peeping. If you look at their browser history, they're on the internet and they've been erasing the browser history. Or if you see them withdrawing to the bathroom for a long time, locking doors for extended periods of time, taking devices with them. Those are just things that might raise a flag. I think that affect you talked about with that poor young victim where she wasn't very emotional, right? That's what you're talking about when you say a flat affect is also a really interesting telling red flag. With her, not that it's any of my business, but was there any known actual physical, not actual, because the porn is abuse like we talked about, but was she also being abused by somebody? From my understanding of her story is when she was exposed to pornography at the neighbor's house, the little girl down the street, her father was a porn consumer. And so there were no filters on any devices and it was just readily available at the home. And the father kind of confessed to that. And so there was that, but the little girl, the friend had already become sexually expressive or sexually acting out as a result of pornography. So that was a from my understanding, that was her first experience with sexual contact from another person was the neighbor. Because that statement, I should be able to have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want, is a pattern that we see of people who use sex irresponsibly in dangerous ways. And so that's really scary. Little things like that, that was a huge thing that she said, but it could be little things like that. Like my kids, for example, 
when they say see like just regular kissing on Star Wars or something like at the end when you know it's just like a little kissing scene that's not really a big deal they're all like ew gross you know and, and I think that is age appropriate for them to be like oh yeah I kind of want to watch this kissing so something you know maybe not what we would call typical might be a red flag as well absolutely absolutely yeah pornography really sends the message that sex with anybody and whoever and however you want is a right and they they present it in such a degrading violent racist incestuous child-themed manner that it wears down any sense of right and wrong any sense of sexual boundaries yeah you can add sexist to that list of course a hundred percent yes speaking of pornography as this sort of documentation of exploitation is really what it is. It's a filmed documentation of someone being abused and exploited. Tell me about your experience with victims of trafficking. What has that taught you about the dangers of pornography? Well, interestingly, around the same time that I was seeing these children, I started seeing first set of trafficking survivors that were referred to me. And one of those trafficking survivors, well, actually two, had been forced to create pornography against their will. And one was actually a male, a young male, but they were forced to create material and made to look like they enjoyed what was happening to them. So that quickly opened my eyes to that side of the demand and the uh, production of pornography. Likewise, there's so much coming out this finally being exposed about Pornhub, which I'm sure you're familiar with as the largest platform of pornography globally, and how many cases of known child sex trafficking they profit from on these websites. Extremely disturbing, violent material that they know these are children being raped and they profit from it. Then we also, a few years ago, at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation had a summit, and we have one every year, but a few years ago, we had a producer from Playboy who had had a life change, and with weeping and great regret, he talked about the fact that as a producer at Playboy, he trafficked, coerced, manipulated over 500 young girls into Playboy. And he explained how he and his colleagues would trick these girls into getting into the industry, thinking they were getting into modeling, and then systematically wear them down into doing things they never thought they would do, and then forcing them to look like they like it. And he talked about how many lives he ruined and how none of them came back to tell him, thank you for getting me into this career, and that many of them died early. And there's just story after story after story. The industries are are very much overlapping, the pornography industry and the sex industry. And pornography is like the feeder drug for the demand for sex trafficking. Yeah. So if you want to stop sex trafficking or you're horrified by child sex trafficking or child sex abuse the number one thing that you do is you boycott pornography. That would be the first thing. At the very least, you do that. For all the people out there who are using porn, who also think they're progressive and that they're into human rights and stuff like that, like, no. If you're using porn, that is the worst human rights abuse that you could participate in. Yeah, you're promoting sexual slavery. 
because they'll say, well, there, there's people who are in this voluntarily and that's their ride. And you really don't know. Even people who produce supposedly amateur porn or quote unquote ethical porn. Yeah. Feminist porn, all these labels, buzzwords you want to put on it. Oftentimes you find out later that that was not the case at all. It was just a mask to promote their abuse. I say pornography is the documentation of their sexual abuse. People film it. And then not only is it the documentation of their sexual abuse, but then people masturbate to it for entertainment, which is very, very wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. It's filmed rape. Yeah, it's filmed rape. When the actress from the movie Deep Throat, uh, which was a horrible film, uh, testified before Congress about the sexual exploitation in the pornography industry that she experienced. She said, when you watch this movie, you are watching me be gang raped, literally and figuratively having a gun held to my head. And people would assume, and they assume incorrectly, that it's just entertainment or they consented or that they're not really getting hurt or something like that. And that's not true at all. And it's scary and it's really dangerous. Going to pedophiles, let's talk about the child sex abuse for a little bit. So Malia, in your experience as a therapist, you have worked with one court-ordered pedophile for treatment for his pathology, but you've also worked with sex addicts to varying degrees, right, throughout your career. Let's talk about pedophiles. From your experience, what created that de-evolvement? I I don't want to say the evolution, because that kind of seems like they're getting better when these people are getting worse. They're escalating their abuse. Can you talk about how pornography was the catalyst to their abuse escalating into abusing children? Absolutely. Well, uh, studies of the last 25 years of convicted child sex offenders, 100% of them were addicted to pornography. And in our criminal justice system, people who are behind bars for sexual assault, 100% of them are pornography heavy pornography consumers, if not addicts. There's not an exception to that rule. So even if it didn't begin with pornography, let's say it started with their sexual abuse or it started with a mental illness, that it was fed by pornography, if not started by pornography. It's definitely a part of their journey. It's a part of their story. In the case that I worked with, it started at five. This man was introduced to pornography at five. And was encouraged by very misogynistic male role models to consume women like a feather in his hat, like a notch in his belt from the time he was very, very young. And in his case, it's interesting, there was no remorse, even after being in prison for an extended period of time, reportedly from folks in contact, there was no remorse. And that's disturbing because We think about how pornography affects the brain, and studies demonstrate that continual pornography use affects the pleasure pathway or the reward pathway of the brain, like an illicit drug like heroin or cocaine, and it actually causes the gray matter to atrophy and shrink. But the experts say that the frontal lobe of the brain, where you have the compassion and the altruism, the desire to care for other people, help other people, 
when the brain begins to shrink through repeated use, that part of the brain actually shrinks back so that there's no compassion left. There's no empathy. You begin to see others as objects to be used. It literally alters the way the brain functions and hardwires this expectation and appetite for violence and people consuming people. I often say, if you're an alcoholic, you abuse alcohol. If you're a drug addict, you abuse drugs. If you're a porn addict or a sex addict, you abuse people. It's an abuse issue. It's going to be an abuse issue. It's not a moral issue, although it is. It's definitely a moral issue. But the issue at hand is abuse. It is. It's abuse. It's justice. It's a health issue. I'd like to thank Malia for coming on today's episode. We're going to continue this conversation next week. So please stay tuned for the continuation. If this podcast is helpful to you, we really appreciate your monthly support. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll down to the bottom and click on support this podcast. Similarly, every single one of your ratings on iTunes or your other podcasting apps helps isolated women find us. Many of you have purchased my new book, Trauma Mama Husband Drama. It's available on our website at btr.org backslash books. You can find Trauma Mama there. You click on that. It'll take you directly to Amazon or you can find it directly into Amazon. I would really appreciate your five-star reviews on this book. So if you have purchased it and you haven't yet reviewed it and you are so inclined, please go to Amazon and review that today. And until next week... Stay safe out there.